Welcome to After Awakening. Here we discuss enlightenment and the greater spiritual reality with meditation masters and spiritual teachers. Fantastic to have you on. How are you doing? I'm good, Ryan. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I, I'm super excited for this talk. I even got a new microphone. I have to apologize for my pre to my previous guests for not giving them the same treatment. You know, I'm really, really <laughs> looking forward to this. You're the author, co-author of the book, Practicing the Jhanas, Traditional Concentration Meditation as presented by the Venerable Pawak Saida. He is a, a Burmese meditation master. So I had listened to an, an interview that you did on, on Buddhist Geeks, and you talked about you know, going through the jhanas and the formless attainments and seeing subatomic particles and really experiencing reality in, in a way that I'd never heard anyone describe up to that point. So that's when I started to, to look into your work and you're like a unicorn. Really? <laughs> and it's awesome that people are going to be, yeah, to, to, exactly. Because I've, I've been in the Theravada world for, for so long and to so many different temples. There's so many different ways of, of practicing and, and there's so many different philosophies and techniques and the ones that were always profound to me were the jhana practices, but there's so few people that have actually attained them and can speak with them authoritatively. So very happy to have you. And so are the monks and nuns that are listening to this call. So mm. well, it's a delight to be able to share some of this with that, with an audience like that. So I really appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. So we can turn, you know, turn the clock back to when this path of meditation and, and spirituality really started for you. Now meditation is super popular. Everyone is into it. But back in the 70s, before then, it wasn't, it was kind of, it was pretty weird, I'm, I'm sure, at least. Yeah. <laughs> culturally in the West. <laughs> so, so how did that all start for you? Did you kind of have a spiritual awareness even before you started a meditation practice? What was that all like? Yeah, well, the way that it, it happened, my parents were into, they were very open-minded spiritually. And so I was raised with a lot of openness, even though we did go to unity churches, which in that day was, and I lived in the Midwest, so it was kind of on the edge, but still mainstream enough that it was like normal. And then when I was 13, there was a family day at then the Methodist church that we were going to in the suburbs of Chicago in Wheeling. And I just happened to wander into the sanctuary and somebody was in there teaching meditation. And, and my story now is that this person had just come back from Asia somewhere and it was in the seventies and he was sharing what he learned. And my parents were off doing something else. I don't know where they were on the church grounds. And so I sat in there and I listened to what he was teaching and I just started doing it at night. I mean, I had no education about Buddhism or anything like that, but I just started doing the practice and it was really helpful. Being a teenager can be a little stressful. So I just, it was extremely practical for me. That was how I got started. When I was a kid, my parents took me to a lot of different temples and churches. We went to the Baha'i Temple in Chicago, and we went to a Jewish synagogue and to other places because they really, even though we were going to a Methodist church, 
they were wanting me to experience different traditions. So I, I do think that was very unusual. And it just gave me an open-minded view about these things. From having exposure to some of these various traditions through your parents, when did you first encounter meditation as a form of a practice? When did you first sit down with that person who had returned from Asia? That was when I was 13. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So most of the people on the call didn't get into meditation until they're 17, 18. Some of us not until we were 25. So to start at 13 is that's just wild, especially to have done it back then. It was just such a fluke because my parents didn't even know I was doing it. I would do it before I went to sleep. They wouldn't have minded if I was doing it, but I just was doing it for myself. I didn't have all the teachings behind it. I just had it as a practice. That was it. And it wasn't until I got into my 20s that I really started. That was when um, in my mid to late 20s, I really started wanting to learn more about traditions. And I just started devouring books from all different traditions from the library and experimented with different traditions. I did my first Buddhist retreat in my late twenties, mid to late twenties. And that was it. I was just hooked after doing a you know, weekend retreat. And I just started doing longer and longer retreats and more and more retreats. And it started honing in on Buddhism. And once I started actually doing the practices deeply, I, I just loved them and, and wanted to just do more and more. Was there a kind of initial mystical or religious experience? Hmm. Well, when I look back at the time, I just, I, I actually went into the long retreats, not wanting to read too much. I really wanted not to be like influenced by, and I didn't even know exactly that I was doing this, but there was some part of me that didn't want to expect, know what to expect. So I actually didn't start reading about the practices until I was many years in and had done like month long retreats. And really what I had was the talks the teachers were giving. But what I realized now was that even on my first long retreat, I would hear the talks and I would hear about how hard it, like the teachers would be saying how hard it was and how much people were struggling and this and that. And I'm thinking, Gosh, it's, I mean, not that I didn't have hindrances and defilements. I totally did. But I would just get into really some extremely blissful places that didn't seem like the norm. And I'd go into my interviews and say, I can be with the breath all day without going off. I'm having this amazing, I'm like outrageously blissful. What do I do? And my teachers would be like, enjoy yourself. So I, it, the, <laughs> I, I did start getting a sense that it wasn't common mm. and it was very, it was extremely healing. And at the end of every retreat, the people around me when we broke silence and they were like so relieved that like it was over and I would just bawl my eyes out the whole time. I never wanted to break silence and come out of it because I mean, I had a good life and things, but there was something so pristine and so so such a depth of truth in that level of silence and, and depth within oneself that I really, I didn't want it to end. And so that I could tell at the time, I didn't really know how to talk about it or 
how that it was unusual until I started talking to other people. And, and I, I got invited to a senior students group when I was still in my 20s because my teachers could kind of see what was happening. So yeah, there were absolutely tastes. There were tastes fairly early that are what made me start doing like a month-long retreat every year. I went deep. I did my first 10-day and it was hard. I remember, <laughs> it's kind of funny now because this was my first 10-day retreat and I was in such great shape like in my 20s and I was so uncomfortable the whole time. I was so restless. And this poor guy next to me, I thought he was ancient. He's probably about 50. He's probably younger than I am now. And he just seemed so ancient to me. But he never moved. He was like the Buddha. He's like my role model that he could sit for this long without moving. And I was so restless. And of course, now I sit like he does. But, but it's still, even with all that restlessness and with all the hindrances and defilements that I had, I would have enough tastes that I could really go, I want to do this again. How soon can I do this again? And so that was, it accelerated rapidly once I got into it. My interest accelerated very rapidly. Yeah. Right. Some people seem to have, have difficulty with balancing their spiritual life and their worldly life. They feel like those things are incongruent at times or they're just not on the same frequency. Did you deal with that growing up or did you kind of feel like your, your career path was an extension of your spirituality? How did you navigate that? Yeah, well, now it feels all very, very integrated, but that has really been a long process because I work, worked, still works a little in the business world. And I mean, I do humanistic work, so it's, that's always been congruent. My, my values about what I was doing were always congruent, but you know, 30 years ago, meditation is not what it is now. And I, I would be gone and I would be uncertain whether I could actually say where I was going and what I was doing. So I was a little bit in the closet for the first, maybe five, five to seven years. And then at some point I started really not, I, I just felt that it was to be an authentic person. I had to be able to share this. So I would say where I was going and, and gradually people got interested. And over time now, of course, these same companies are having meditation programs in their companies. But yep. when I started, it was not like that at all. It was a little risky to even share that. But at some point I just felt I had to be authentic. But then there was a whole period of like, how do I integrate these? They feel like, I feel like I have two lives. And over the years, they've just gotten more and more to where I feel like the work that I've done in the business world is about human potential. It's with leaders who are having a huge impact on the world, mostly in healthcare. And I'm doing a certain kind of human development and working with human potential with these leaders. And I'm doing a different kind with spiritual practitioners, but it's all about human potential. So it doesn't feel, it feels very seamless now, but that's been a long journey. So I think for all of us, we have to find what's appropriate in our environments. Some environments might be more accepting than others, but there's also being authentic. And you, 
at some point, if your spiritual life is really core to who you are, it's hard to hide that completely and feel authentic. So I, I encourage the people I work with to try and find a way to feel integrated within themselves and then to do what's appropriate externally for the situation that they're in. Right. And to go back to the the practice itself, I believe you had been practicing under Gil Franzadil and he was the first to refer you to look into the jhanas? Actually, it was Guy Armstrong. Yeah, Guy was really like, to my knowledge, the first person who really, at Spirit Rock at least, which is where I did most of my practice, and then I went to IMS for the three-month retreat at one point, but living on the West Coast. And Guy, I was doing the month-longs doing Vipassana for years. I didn't even know about the Samatha practice because nobody was talking about it or teaching it. And then at one point, Guy said he, he had a small group of us who like secretly were doing the Samatha practice. And we, there was like this little island of Samatha people and we were using Metta. We were using the Brahma Viharas because that's how they had learned it. And we were in the sea of Vipassana people and we'd be walking quickly. All the Vipassana people would be walking really slowly thinking, they're awful Vipassana practitioners. Look how fast they're walking. But we'd be going into the dining hall being like, oh, may they be safe. May they be healthy. We'd be doing metta. And, and anyway, there's a, a story that guy tells about this period where one of the metta yogis, she went into the dining hall and she was so into her metta practice. But, you know, you're not quite as mindful. And she got her meal and she put it down and she realized she had to go get her water and she got and came back. And then she sat down on her chair where she'd put her food. And so she sat in her food. (laughs) So you can imagine this little sea of us metta yogis doing in the sea of Vipassana practitioners. But yeah, so it was Guy who really started bringing that in and he was the one when I did my year-long solo retreat and was reporting on what happened. He said, oh, you really should study with Pauk Sayado. And, and a, a good friend of mine, Robert Cusick, was the one who first who organized Pauk's first retreat in the U.S. And that was how I, I was referred to Robert. And that was when I signed up for, for the first two-month retreat that the side of did in the United States. Then I started doing more of the Samatha as time went on because that was being introduced and there were even talks in the hall. Over the years then it became a lot more public and there were a lot more people that started doing the Samatha and it became a little bit more mainstream and, and being talked about, but it was very controversial. It seemed that going to these different retreats and different centers, I spent some time at Panditarama in uh, Myanmar, and I did my 10-day retreat in the Goenka, Goenka tradition. And so I've, I've been around the block in these circles. And in right. some of them, they're very not friendly towards the Samatha Jhanas for whatever reason. Can you touch on that yeah. and why it's a thing? Yeah. Well, initially... It was thought that one, well, in in Asia, there's a different view than what we have in the U.S. And and when I do my like day longs and things, I I have a whole section on this 
just to, to make it clear, but it was thought there were several reasons. One is it was thought that lay people couldn't do that practice and, and maybe women couldn't do that practice either. So it was sort of reserved for, for the male monastics, which is kind of how things were then. And, 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 but more so it was thought that one should have stream entry first because of the supranormal powers that could be developed with the upper jhanas so that one should have the responsibility of have stream entry so that one wouldn't use those for harm it doesn't mean a lot to a lot of westerners don't believe in those things but you know a lot of the asian people that i've met i've taught at some of the burmese centers and such and what's seen differently that it is a real thing and even like in india Deepama was studied by a university for doing these things so there was and i get that there's there was some thinking that that the practice should be reserved for those who could handle it and also there was the thought that not that many people could do it anyway so why bother to teach it widely so, I, I mean, I, I understand where they were coming from. Also, within the Mahasi Sayadaw lineage, it was, they really focused so much on the Satipatthana Sutta, which says that you don't need that. Although you've got, I've been told by Buddhist scholars and historians, of which I am not, I teach from experience, not from, from that, but I know people who are extremely learned, including Pao Sayadaw. And they say that 60 to 80% of the suttas, when the Buddha was asked how to practice, he pointed people to the Samatha and the jhanas. So, so to me, it's a little odd that you pull one sutta out and disregard the wide mass of suttas where the Buddha is talking about both Samatha and Vipassana and just say, well, he didn't really mean it. He just really meant this. So I... I'm not sure, but in the in the Mahasi Sayadaw tradition, it was a lot more encouraged to do only just go for the Vipassana because you don't need the Samatha. And if you do use it, it was taught the people who taught it to me learned it in the Mahasi tradition, but it was then offered to people who had already had stream entry. Yeah, these were all reasons why it was thought to be unnecessary or not wise. And then Mopak Saida came along and he had his own scholarship, which was extremely highly regarded around what the Buddha actually taught. And he started putting forth different understandings of what the Buddha actually was saying, looking at this large, large mass of suttas where the Buddha talked about the Samatha and, and saying, we can't just disregard these. We need to look at what he actually said and what he actually practiced. I mean, that to me is the most compelling thing. And when I started teaching, I wanted to find out how the Buddha thought about this. And he was doing this practice at the moment of his death. He could have done any, he knew he was going to die. This had been, he had seen this and predicted it before his death. And so he knew at the moment, at the time he was dying, he could have done any practice he wanted to. And he did the Samatha practice. 
Now that is compelling to me. He didn't do Vipassana, he did Samatha. So we can speculate as to why he did that and we'll never really know for sure why he did it. But that that is really compelling to me. So those are some of the reasons why I think it wasn't done and was controversial because a lot of teachers came back and they just, they didn't even learn the Samatha. So now if you've got senior teachers who's been teaching for 20 years who don't know a practice and who've invested all this time in teaching Vipassana, it's a little hard to go back and how do you integrate those? But it, it has happened and I think now we're at a point where there's a lot more balance. At least that's my perception of it. For the people that may not be familiar, could you define Samatha and Jhana? Yeah, the Samatha practice, a different... Theravadan traditions see it a little differently. So there's, I was, my teaching authorization is in the in the lineage of Pauxite of Burma. There's also the, the whole Mahasi lineage. There's the Goanka tradition, which I'm not as familiar about with. And then there's the Thai forest tradition, which I, I do know something about how they see it. So just to give a context where I'm coming from. The word Samatha means both concentration and serenity. So it's important to remember that it doesn't just mean concentration. Some people call it the Samadhi practice. And that is the word Samadhi just means concentration. I think there's a reason why it's called Samatha, which is that the serenity is extremely important. We don't want to forget that part of it. So that's what the word Samatha means. Basically, in, in the Samatha practice, and there are many objects so the base object is the breath in this region between the upper lip and the nostril. It can be a region, but there's other objects. There's 40 objects. So it's not the only one in the Samatha category, but it's uh, a practice where we focus on one object to the exclusion of everything else. And we just bring our awareness back to that object over and over in order to unify the mind stream and it can become very laser-like, which can cut through our normal perceptions of reality and also give a lot of power to that awareness when it's used for other practices like Vipassana. So that's what the Samatha practice is in a nutshell. It's a present moment practice that's really important to remember. Just like Vipassana or any authentic practice, it is a present moment practice and the breath is an easy object to bring us into the present moment. The jhanas are a, there are three levels of concentration, momentary access and absorption. So momentary concentration is the first level. So any, any meditation we're doing, we, we start at momentary where we're on the object and off, on and off, and that's momentary. Then, and that's kind of like a lantern where the light of our consciousness is just shining in all directions. And then the next stage is access concentration, which has a very big range from about staying with the object for five minutes substantially all the way up to half an hour, where we're really not going off of the object substantially. And that is can be a very deep, that starts lighter where we're on and off, on and off, and then gets deeper and deeper to where the high levels of access concentration, we may not be thinking hardly at all. And it's very, it feels very, very different than our normal consciousness. 
and is extremely purifying. And in Vipassana, you can get up to access concentration. So because of having an, a momentary object that changes any of the open monitoring styles of meditation, which we now know through neuroscience, there's the category of open monitoring, and then there's another category of focused attention. Any of the styles that do open monitoring can't get to absorption level. So they have other good things about them that Samatha doesn't have. So they're great practices, but just to distinguish. So then in Samatha or fo focused attention practices, we, because the object is stable, that's what makes these two different is the object, the type of object. So because we have a stable object, the awareness can become so unified that absorption into the object can happen. Our awareness becomes absorbed in the object. And what's really important about an absorption is that it is a non-dual state. And this is why I think the Buddha thought so highly of it, because the ego self goes dormant in a non-dual state. And there are other ways to experience non-dual states, but, but through concentration is one of them. And one of the good things about it is that once, if a person has access to absorption, it is repeatable. Whereas other ways of experiencing non-duality that are more momentary, like in Zen Shikantaza or in Rigpa in the Dzogchen practice, they're momentary and they're not as predictable. So I think this is part of why the Buddha thought so highly of it, because when you cross that, the other thing is there's the threshold that has to be crossed where the ego goes dormant and there's a lot that the psyche has to work through for that to be possible. Because basically we're having awareness without the presence of the ego self. And so that in itself is extremely purifying and it's a preparation for awakening. It isn't awakening, but it is, it's practice. It's giving our consciousness practice at being without the ego self, having that be dormant, which is amazing practice for awakening where that happens in a way that uproots at some level. So, and then there are different stages of jhanas that become more and more refined and there's two categories of jhanas. There's the form jhanas, which are all using the breath or other objects, but you can use the breath, which is a physical phenomena. So these are also called the material jhanas. That's one through four. And then there are what is called the formless or immaterial jhanas. And those are like a whole different category, which in Buddhism, these are understood to be actual realms of existence. So there, there's the physical realm, and then these four, there's these four immaterial realms. And so they're just qualitatively different than the first four. And for these absorptions, the form jhanas and, and the formless realms, it seems that there's debate or there's contention over what is jhana in some of these communities. I wanted you to, to touch on that because I hear one teacher saying that jhana is defined as this, and I hear you and Ajahn Brahm and Pak Sayada saying jhana is with an, an, an amitta. And if, if there's no namitta, it's not jhana. So uh -huh. can you can you address that? Because my, my point of view is that 
Well, the jhana with the namitta is vastly more stable than one without one. So what's your take on, on this specific issue? Yeah, and again, I will say that I have only practiced in really in the Pawak lineage. I mean, I did do the, the Brahma Viharas, but I, I, I was told to go to Pawak for really the, the full the full story. So I feel that my own teachers told me to go to him, and that's what I'm speaking from. I haven't practiced in, for example, the Iacama tradition. So, and I, I will say that Lee Brasington and I once were both on, invited to an event and he spoke in the morning and I spoke in the afternoon and we each listened to each other and it was quite lively. <laughs> and we, awesome. we just agree to disagree, you know, it's, it's fine. But yes, yeah, so I'm teaching from what I've learned. And I, I did ask Pauk Saido that question because I've been asked that question without a nimitta, is it jhana? And he said, no. It's not. He said, no nimitta, no jhana. I trust his scholarship. I mean, the man is, is extremely intelligent, highly respected. And when you go to him and you are sitting in front of him asking for said reporting and asking, this is someone who quotes the answer from the Pali Canon. By memory. By memory, word for word. And then he does the same thing in English and never opens a book and he knows everything. So I just... I, I trust his scholarship. So I, I'll just say that that is my view of where I come from. And he doesn't just use the Vasudhi Maga. He uses the suttas equally to the Vasudhi Maga. So for those who say that he's a Vasudhi Maga teacher, it's absolutely not true. If you read his book, you can see all the sutta references. So when I hear, I have, as you can imagine, there's a lot of crossover among students to teachers and I get a lot of people who have studied in other traditions. I feel that, and I've also met a monk named Ajahn Chandigo, who wrote an excellent article called The Honan Heavy Axe, Samatha and Vipassana in Harmony. And he's from the Ajahn Chah lineage. And I felt that he and I had a very similar view of how it works, even though they, they feel it's more like two feet up the mountain. And in the Pawak tradition, you do the Samatha all the way from beginning to end, and then you do the Vipassana. So there's that difference. But I feel that our understanding of what jhana is, is very similar, actually. And Ajahn Chah was an extremely attained jhana master, and very few people knew that because he couldn't talk about his attainments. But Ajahn Chandaka went to all of the senior forest monastics who had studied directly with Ajahn Chah, and he wanted to find out what works in this tradition. And every single one who was really attained had jhana. And that's when he became convinced that, and, and they told him Ajahn Chah could go into jhana in one breath. This is how close he was to jhana. So people who think that that isn't in the, in the Thai forest tradition, it's just not true. So I feel that my understanding is very similar to Ajahn Brahms, which again, I haven't practiced in his tradition, but from reading some of what he's written and hearing from people, I feel there's a lot of similarity there. The Iacama tradition, I'm going to say this, and I've had to say it to students when they come in and report their experience and when I'm seeing them actually on retreats. I feel that what they're experiencing isn't jhana, it's access concentration. Hmm. Because 
one of the key differences in the instructions is that when you start feeling PT, like in your hands, that's jhana. Feeling PT is access concentration. That is not a non-dual state. What, what is the benefit? What's the point of even doing jhana if the non-dual state is the important part? It's not PT arising. So I just, I feel that what he's teaching isn't jhana, it's access concentration. It's not invalid. It's a good thing. It's good for people to have access concentration and purification of mind is definitely happening, but it's not jhana, it's access concentration. So the other thing is the lineage of that teaching. I came and got it from a monk who was unknown, who stumbled out of a forest and gave her these instructions. It wasn't anyone with scholarship. It wasn't anyone who was well-known or was even known at all. It was a random monk who wandered out of a forest. So it just, I find it hard to give that a lot of credibility. I mean, I'm not trying to be disparaging, but, but sure. when I hear it, what I hear being described is access concentration. It's really clear. If even in deep access concentration, there's no thought, how can people be describing jhana with thoughts exactly just, just because there's bliss and uh, rapture and light arising that all happens in access concentration that happens in vipassana when i used to go sure. into my vipassana retreats i would go in one time this is funny one time when i was on one of my retreats i would go in and i would describe the headlight doing vipassana and I had all the bliss, I had jhana factors. I didn't know what any of these things were because nobody ever talked about any of that. I'd go in and basically I'd be told, your practice is good, keep doing that. And I was doing Vipassana, I wasn't even doing Samatha. So I was in high level of access concentration. One time I went in and, and I was in interviewing with Gil and Lee Brasington was in the teacher training at the time and he was sitting at the back of the room, like behind me, they have it where, you can't, you know, and Lee and I didn't know each other at all. I was just, he was just some teacher trainee and I was retreating mm -hmm. and I'm describing it and describing it. And he's I'm not supposed to be saying anything. And, and he says, she's describing Jana. And I'm like, what's Jana? Oh, I didn't even know what the word meant at the time. But, you know, this just goes to show that you can have a high level of access concentration in Vipassana. So how is that how is that different than samatha? To me, if you're describing bliss and PT in your hands and stuff, I get all that doing vipassana. What's different about jhana than that? Nothing. So that's to me there there is a key distinction, and I've worked with a lot of people who get right up to the edge of jhana, and there's a whole thing that starts happening for almost everybody where they start, the ego stuff starts getting, it's on the verge of going dormant and that consciousness is going to not have an active ego self mm. and fear comes up. That is a really important part of the practice of one's own spiritual unfoldment. Because when non-duality arises, it is a practice for awakening. And it's important to go through all that. So if that is part of why John is important, 
And some people will get up there and they can't get over that threshold because there's just work that has to happen for that to be possible. Their concentration is good. That's not the issue. It's working through letting go. The letting go can't be made to happen because the more you push, it's the ego self that's pushing. So it's like those toys you stick on your fingers and the more you pull, like the tighter your finger gets stuck in it. At that point, at the beginning of the Samatha, you need the strong will and the, the, you have to really be a warrior. But as it goes on, there needs to be less and less of that. And, and there has to be a surrender and a deactivation of the ego self. And that's what awakening is. So without that, John, isn't that meaningful to me? Anyway, so, I mean, to me, that's why I think I just don't see, I don't see the distinction from Vipassana for one thing, because one can have PT and Vipassana. And it's part of the teachings that Vipassana can get you up to high access. So it doesn't really make sense, just logically. And then secondly, why would a whole practice be designed just to have PT arise? Sure. It's the non-duality that's important. What is the first jhana like? Because in, in some traditions, this first jhana is considered samadhi, right? You, you have attained samadhi when you've entered a jhana. Yeah, well, it is. I mean, in the um, Eightfold Path, right concentration is considered jhana. The Buddha, that's pretty clear, I think. So, yeah, it's, well, jhana at first, before one has the masteries, jhana you can't make it arise. Your your concentration and your letting go, your surrender, the surrender of the me leading things has to be ripe, just like an avocado. You can't you can't put an avocado in the oven and make it ripen. You just have to let it. You can put it in a paper bag. So you can make it a little faster. And that's what we're doing with our practices is we're, we're creating optimal conditions, but it can't be made to happen through ego effort. There has to be a humility and a surrender to the Dharma and to the mystery and a trust and a showing up. One has to show up 100% and let go 100% which is really what awakening is, is being 100% present and 100% surrendered. So it's a great training. So when it happens, though, one can feel it's sort of hovering there. And then at some point, the nimitta merges with the breath and it's the awareness is just pulled in. And, and the nimitta is a light. It's a light that's in the mind's eye. It's, it has nothing to do with like our visual eyes. So sometimes you'll see people like on a lot of the retreats, the, the Powak retreats, you see people like with towels over their heads or eye masks on. And it's like, what are they doing? They're trying to see the nimitta. So just to say, it has nothing to do with our physical eyes. It's all a byproduct of the unification of mind. So, and as the mind becomes more and more unified, the breath and this nimitta become one thing that's called the anapana nimitta. So it's merged. And if we're trying to see two objects, it's just going to, 
We just stay with the breath. That's all we do the whole time, really. But people are tempted to look at the nimitta and that'll just erode your concentration. So then you suffer and you get to just stop playing with your nimitta because the nimitta dissipates and, and everyone sort of has to go through that in their own way. But it is pretty exciting because it's people get that they can't make it happen, that there's actually something really mysterious going on here. And then at some point when the awareness, it's like your vibration gets more and more refined. And at some point you're coming up, coming up, coming up. And all of a sudden it's the same level of the first jhana and your awareness can be pulled in and surrendering is really the best it's a non-doing, but there's a little bit of just really, there's a devotional quality to it actually. And, and then the awarenesses of the object, which is the breath after doing um, Panasati and of jhana factors. And there's, there's no thought, or there can be what Pawak Saido calls a slight imperfection of jhana where Occasionally a thought might come up, but it's extremely fleeting. Usually for most people, they can only tolerate it for a few seconds at first and they pop out and go back into access concentration. It's not like I'm in jhana. If, if that's the sense, then that's access concentration. There's just the awareness and it's extremely, the purification that can be felt is much more intense than in the access, even though it can be quite intense in the access concentration in the higher. And then over time, if that continues, if one has the stability for that to deepen, it's like being at 14,000 feet altitude. You start getting used to it. The first day you're like, I can't breathe. And then as you get acclimated, you're normalizing and that can be longer and longer. And then there's the jhana masteries is the next stage of the, of the practice where over time, some people can have it arise at will. For the jhana mastery, from what I remember from the book, you're able to make the intention to go into any absorption for a specific amount of time and exit on that right on the clock, correct? Yeah. So if you were, when you were undergoing this training with Pawak Saida and you went into the first jhana and the mastery was to go into it for four hours. You come out at three minutes, three hours and 59 minutes. You failed the test. <laughs> well, yes, you do. I mean, this is why it can take two months just to do the first jhana for a lot of people. I mean, it's, and he, he didn't make everybody do four hours. I think he just made me do it because he wanted to see if I could. It was like, Oh, I got a live one here. Let's see what she can do. So like, I don't make people do that because it's just, it, it just takes, I don't teach two month retreats anyway. You need to have sure. a long time. I want to ask you about that point as far as time for this level of purification of mind to, to arise. Lots of my friends have gone on these 10 day Vipassana retreats or done short retreats and they're like, I'm going to attain jhana at the end of this 10-day retreat. Mind you, it's a Vipassana retreat, right? So, <laughs> so, <laughs> but, Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So a lot of us have unrealistic expectations when it comes to these levels of refinement. So you've taught so many of these retreats. Why is it that so many people have difficulty from first sit to first jhana? Is it just that there's not really enough time for a lot of people on a two-week retreat? 
do they really need three months of silence, six months of silence? We know in the Tibetan tradition, shamatha is a practice. There were people just using one object for months at a time before it would arise. I know Beyond Wallace has touched on that a bit, but what's your experience with that? Yeah, well, I I will say that I have had a few students come through from B. Allen Wallace's even long-term retreats, and, and I don't think people are getting enough guidance on those. So I, I don't think that that is necessarily the best use of time because you need a lot of guidance. And so that would be one thing I would say is if somebody really wants to do the Samatha practice, get some guidance because you could waste months or years of your life unnecessarily. Wow. So when you were doing this with the side, uh, did you meet with him every day? Yes. He insisted on that. And if it meant you stood there for two hours in the rain, you stood there for two hours in the rain waiting every day, which is what the women did because there were a lot more of us. And when I became a nun, they made me go to the front of the line. But yeah, you, that's what you do. People, a lot of people don't like it. And if you go in and he says, how long are you with the breath? And you say five minutes. He says, focus here, next person. And you've waited for two hours to get that. Whoa. So yeah, it's a little different than that what we're used awesome. to. <laughs> that is awesome. And when he used to I do that, that in Burma, people would come up on their knees after waiting for three hours and he would do that. So we, the conditions we have in the West are, anyway, that's what he, wants people to do. So part of what he, why he asked Stephen and I to start teaching was that he wanted people who could translate. It'd been so long since he had experienced that first to first jhana territory that he didn't have as much to offer there as he did once you had jhana. So a lot of, you know, people have said that he's great from base camp to the Mount Everest, but you need somebody to get you up to base camp. And that's really what Stephen and I tried to fill in with our book. And, and that's what everybody needs. So I, our rate of helping people was higher than his. That's and incredible. That's, yeah, that's part of why he asked us because he could see that he needed somebody to flesh that territory out. So just to say that, that there were a lot of people who did three or four months retreats with him that left in a really discouraged state. And he's an amazing teacher. And if you have the opportunity to actually get to First John and then go on, he's incredible. So that would be the first thing is don't do it. Don't, don't think you can just do it on your own. Get some help because people, once the concentration develops, whatever you focus on, it just expands. And people get into a lot of yogi mind and it's intense yogi mind and they don't know that they're in it. Once you get the laser-like awareness with the high access concentration, when the hindrances and defilements come up, all that laser-like awareness is going into them. And it's a lot, it, it will go into whatever you directed at. And if you happen to get into some unsound thinking, it's gonna get amplified with all that power. So you really need somebody to help you stay on track and not waste months. Yeah, that's the first thing I would say. The other thing I'll say is that not everyone has the capacity for jhana. And that's just 
an unfortunate reality and one doesn't know until I, I feel that it takes at least three, two week retreats. Like in my experience with a lot of students over the, like the past 13, 15 years is that to really know for sure. I mean, it might even take more than that, but I've had people who the first retreat, people are getting their sea legs, just understanding how to balance the energy and the concentration. There's a lot you learn about just getting more skillful, not just in Samatha, but in any practice. And then second retreat, there's some, some additional skillfulness that may accelerate that. And I've had people on the third, fourth, even fifth retreat, that's when they attain first jhana. It's, it takes a while to get their sea legs and to get enough momentum in the practice to be able to tell. And then there are other people I did it taught a month long, a number of years ago, and it did make a difference for some people. For some people, it didn't make a difference. Any, the thing is that even if one doesn't attain jhana, there's still a huge amount of benefit to one's practice of doing that purification of mind. So the idea that it's a waste if you don't attain jhana is completely false. It's completely false. So I, I mean, that's one of the unfortunate things about this practice. That's why I call it purification of mind practice. If one is doing Vipassana and doesn't attain stream entry, you don't give up after two retreats. I mean, can you imagine Spirit Rock and IMS would have closed years ago if that was true? Of course. None of the Mahasi centers would even be open if people felt that they would give it two or three retreats and then give up. So it's a real double standard that people have for the Samatha and the Vipassana. It's really, it's not what the Buddha intended. I don't think if you read what he actually said. So, so that would be the first thing. But I think anybody, when I asked the Saida about this, he said that he felt anybody who was really sincerely motivated to attain first jhana, he thought they could. So I don't, I just passed that on. But I'd say every retreat, if I look back, it's between 15 and 25% of people who attain first jhana. Oh, okay. So that gives you a sense of that. The, the cool thing is that for people who can, if they keep doing it, some of them can go beyond that. Second, well, third, and fourth absorption. Yeah, I, I've had it, some people go up to third or fourth jhana, even just on a two-week retreat, once they really have their sea legs. But this is, we're talking a lot of retreats, and it's extremely rare for anybody to get into the upper jhanas. As far as I know, there, there were only a few, I mean, in all of Pauk's decades and decades of teachings, he's only had a hand, a few people. He hasn't had that many. So I think to be realistic, I think for most people, the upper jhanas aren't, aren't that realistic of, of a possibility. But first jhana, I mean, this is really what I believe is that if a person even has first jhana, their shot at stream entry is going to be way higher. Because if you can take that concentration and direct it at Vipassana or at Dzogchen or whatever practice you're doing, it is a laser. It's It powers your practice in a way that you just it's rocket fuel. 
So, and I think that even I've had so many long-term Vipassana practitioners come to my retreats and even the ones who never attained jhana, their Vipassana practice is so much more robust and they have huge amount of insight. The Samatha practice is a wisdom practice. You can have insight into two of the three characteristics. So the idea that it is not a wisdom practice is totally false. Hmm. I mean, in the Hindu tradition, the, the Samatha practice is the whole path. If you look at the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, that's what they're talking about. So I would really take exception, and I again, I have a whole short talk on this when I do either day-longs or retreats on the Samatha practice as a wisdom practice, because we're getting insight into Dukkha and into Anatta. A suffering and no self at a very fundamental level and Vipassana focuses more on anicca, on impermanence with the arising and passing. But I've had so many people experience long-term people, monastics, who feel that when they do the Samatha practice, whether they attain John or not, their level of insight and being able to turn, turn that power like at the end of my two-week retreats, there's time to then investigate into one's own conditioning and having that as a tool to gain self-understanding and wisdom is, people have said they had more insight on a Samatha retreat than they ever did in their Vipassana retreats just because of the powerful concentration. So it's, I'd like to put out there that even if jhana doesn't arise, there's huge benefit in doing the practice. Would you say that for your students that were pretty skilled in meditation, able to enter jhana on these these short retreats, that if they had more time, let's say a one month or a two month, that the formless attainments would have been possible for those students? I don't know. I haven't actually done a retreat long enough. The people who've gotten up to third or fourth jhana, the month long did help. So when one has access to first jhana, that time really makes a difference because you can just, in two weeks, you can only do so much. You just don't have enough hours to get really past first jhana. It's really hard. Mm. Unless you unless you're extremely experienced at it in two weeks, it's just not enough time. So then having the time does make a difference. Absolutely. I don't know. I haven't had anybody get past fourth jhana. And on, on Powox retreats, Stephen and I, according to what we were told by Powox Idaho and one other monastic who taught with him a lot, we were the only ones who learned the detailed method. We're the only Westerners who he taught the detail to. Everybody else learned the brief. So, so it just takes a lot of time to, and, and what I'm teaching now is a modified version. It's not the full detail because people don't have time and they don't need it. I, I found a way to have people be able to go on where they have enough stability without learning all of the jhana masteries. So they, if they learn just three of the jhana masteries, it's enough. And I don't know. I, I don't know what would have been possible. And I don't know that I'll ever be able to teach a retreat of more than a month because it's just too demanding for the teachers. Be doing another teacher training that's probably going to start in January. And if I have 
a few teachers who have stamina that can alternate that could maybe be possible sometime. But I am working with people on solo retreats now. And especially with the pandemic, I have a lot of retreats in a box that I'm now offering that people are having a lot of success with home retreats. So we'll see. It's a big jump going up to the formless jhanas because you can't use the breath anymore. So you have to change objects. And like when I did it, I did all of the casinas in all four jhanas. Different meditation objects, space, light. Right. So changing all those up, doing them for two to three hours to get the mastery and then going on. I was so concentrated by the time I tried to do the upper jhanas that it just, I, I don't know what it would be like to try and have somebody do that without doing all of the casinos first. And it just takes a lot of time. I was doing it when I was on that retreat, I could switch objects and within a, a day or half a day, I could get the John of mastery with that new object. And That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, now I think about it. I don't even know how that was possible, but it just takes a lot of time. So I don't know what it would be like to try and skip some of those and have somebody just use, I mean, you've got to use earth casino to go to the upper jhanas. So that's not the hardest one. It's like medium hard. So if you, maybe somebody could get up to that. I don't know. I, I don't know if I'll have ever have a chance to find out, but I would love it if somebody could do it. That would, that would be great, right? <laughs> I don't know how excited I felt. <laughs> right. Well, let's segue into, into a lecture of yours that I listened to recently it was called dimensions of non-duality and this was oh, yeah. a talk that you gave to a bunch of spiritual teachers that have gone through awakening and have their own careers teaching so it was it was fantastic to to hear a very holistic perspective on on non-duality this is something that you got a taste of during your first year-long retreat where you were silent and just practicing alone or was it even before this that you started to have a non-dual awareness and awakening? Yeah, well, it started with, with most people, I think, of having tastes and, and having those glimpses that are so profound that they're life-changing, that it's like the most meaningful moment of one's life that you just want to know that more, more deeply, and it brings a lot of people to the spiritual path. So I started having those and having more and more of them and having those be longer. And that's when I decided to do my year long solo retreat and also had the jhanas during that year too. So yeah, that really, uh, the big shift happened during that year. And I, I had no, I, I knew about non-duality because I had also been studying with teachers like Adyashanti from the non-dual modern neo-advaita tradition as well as buddhist teachers and some hindu teachers but i didn't really have the level of understanding that i have now because going through the formless realms with pak Saidao, with his guidance and with really getting confirmation of what was happening and really spending huge amount of time because i had to do all the upper jhanas in all the casinas so I didn't just do them once, I did them in every single casino 
So it was lots and lots of hours in the upper jhanas too. And, and then I started in the diamond approach after that, because I really could see that for me, the next step was an integration and embodiment. And I felt that that path had some really good technologies for integration and embodiment, which has been helpful, but they have a map that gets into dimensions of non-duality called the boundless dimensions in that tradition that I feel have some parallels with the formless realms in Buddhism. So that's what that talk was about. So it's only been after that I've been able to really understand these refinements in how non-duality can be experienced that explains why when you look at different traditions, if you look at Hinduism and Buddhism and Sufism and Christian Christian mystics. Are these people talking about the same thing or what? They sound so different. But if you really look at the dimensions of non-duality, that these are different dimensions, but they're still all non-duality, you can see the different traditions point at different dimensions and that's why they sound different. But they're all talking about the same phenomena from a different it's like the, the blind men and the elephant. One's got the trunk, one's got the tail, but it's all an elephant. But if you heard their descriptions, you would say, these people are talking about different. One's got a snake, one's got a trunk, tree trunk. So that to me has been a development that's only really happened in the last few years where I've really started understanding this more clearly. And also through my own experience that's happened since then where I've had more deep dives into these different dimensions and I've actually known what was happening. Before it was just non-duality and it was like being in a, being in a new country for the first time, you get off the, the train and you're like, wow, you know, right, right. You don't care about what town you're in. You just in this country. But then when you've been there several times, you want to actually know this town is different than this town. And this is mountains and this is beach. And so that's really what's happened since then. It's been 15 years now. And my understanding and experience has become a lot more refined around what's going on there. Plus I've, I've, gotten the teachings from the diamond approach that I feel has a good map of non-duality that's quite coherent. So what's your definition of, of non-duality and awakening? Yeah, well, this is, it's interesting because, you know, because ever, ever seems a lot of people have a different, yeah. different oh, definitions yeah. of this. Exactly. Yeah. I, when, when I was interviewed like on, on um, conscious TV and Buddha, the gas pump, I asked them, what have you learned? And they both said, there's no agreement about what it is. Yep. So I thought, oh, interesting. So just having said that, I don't feel my answer is the answer. I just, sure. it's what feels true for me. So awakening, well, there's non-duality, which is, can happen without awakening. Just like I was saying, for me, there's taste, there's glimpses, and this is how it's taught in Tibetan Buddhism. You try and have the glimpses and or in, in Zen or in Theravada Buddhism, you have the glimpses and then those can string together more and there can be an event that maybe pushes one, there's a leap that's taken. But non-duality is when that sense of the subject and object that, that I'm a, a separate me and all that I'm experiencing are separate objects, that collapses, the ego goes dormant and there's a sense of 
non-separation. So the sense of body boundaries goes dormant or dissolves. And there's a sense of either unity with all things or emptiness of all things or both. It depends what tradition, like in Buddhism, em emptiness is emphasized and the Western traditions, unity is em emphasized, but I feel that it's not really complete until one has both. So that's non-duality and then awakening. So for most people, it's, it's like a sandpapering down. The ego self, I, I talk about the thinning of the me through spiritual practice, through these experiences, through digesting personality material, all of these things sandpaper down the ego self and there's more and more contact with our deeper nature. So the trust, as the ego self goes down, the trust and the contact with our deeper nature increases and the ego starts relaxing more. So there isn't that fear of what am I if I'm not this ego self, that starts diminishing because there's more actual experience with what's beyond the body and the personality. And, and then some people can sort of just go up to 50, 50%. Now they're 51% and they're over the halfway mark. That happens for some people where it's very gradual. But I think for most people, there's some gradual sandpapering. And then there might be a somewhat bigger experience that's maybe gives them 10 more percent. And then there's more sandpapering. And, but I feel that there's that 51% rule where at some point our ground identity shifts over to the ground of being from the ego self. And it's more noticeable when there's a big experience where this happens and now maybe somebody was at 35%, now they're at 65%. That's really noticeable. But even after that, in Theravada Buddhism, there's four stages of awakening. So I think this has been a big misnomer that if somebody has an awakening that gets them past the 51% where their, their identity is shifted and won't ever go back to the where it was, they even if they're acting from the ego and they're, they have a temporary identification, they don't really believe it. That to me is stream entry is, you know, considered the first stage in, in Buddhism. And it's where the, we don't go back. It's, it's, it's a permanent shift of identity. And would you say that requires cessation? I'm not sure about that. And I talked to other teachers and there's a lot of ways that awakening happens. I mean, to me, cessation, which I would define as basically absorption of the personality into the ground of being. So it's like phenomenologically, it feels a lot like a jhana, but instead of being absorbed into a jhana and having conscious awareness, which is what happens in jhana, even the upper jhanas one always has conscious awareness. When cessation happens, it feels like death is imminent because the ego self isn't dormant, it actually gets absorbed into the ground of being and one loses consciousness. So there is no consciousness of that happening and, that, there, and there is no sense of whether or not it will end or not wow. when it happens. 
So there has to be a complete letting go of the ego self in a way that is a surrender and a relaxation that one can't make that happen. The ego self has to be surrendered and relaxed enough for that to arise. And in that moment before that event horizon into vanishing completely into the ground, is is there a visceral experience that happens in the body? Is there physiological markers that people feel when, because I, I'm recalling a Sutta reference where I think the, the description was that the deathless element was being perceived in the body. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, it's, I think it's a great description. I love that the Buddha just said what it was. And so people couldn't get concepts about it, but yeah, that it, I mean, I can only speak from my own experience, which is that it was clear that death was imminent. And yet there was such a beauty and a draw, and it was so compelling to not turn away that it's like the end of what has been sought. So there's both the fear of of the death that feels imminent and the magnificence of the end of what has been sought. And in the stages of insight, there's a path fruition and then the review stage. So after this cessation occurs, there's some psychological transformations or changes that occur, correct? Yeah, it's only after, for me, when it happened, it was only after where consciousness was regained and I was in a chair and I just roughly estimated it had been about 10 minutes and I was like slumped over and my neck really hurt a lot. So uh, there is a way that I've heard, I think maybe you and I talked about this once. I've heard of people having this happen while they were driving. I am so I'm kind of glad that this wasn't my experience, but the people who had it happen while driving just kept driving and all of a sudden they were conscious and didn't know how they'd gotten from X to Y. So there are, there are stories of that. Yeah. But it's, it's a complete surrender really. And so that you asked about the physiology at the back end, there's the physiology of realizing what's happened and coming out of that. And then there's just, I mean, I think I'm sure there are a lot of different descriptions for people because for some people through the traditional like Mahasi style Vipassana, it's a lot based on the way that the letting go is encouraged is through seeing a certain level of emptiness and meaninglessness in the and, and the suffering that is coming from the arising and passing that's uncontrollable. So that is what allows for the letting go is the, the sense I, there's, I can't, there's no control over these phenomena. And so there's a letting go that comes, it's a little bit more on the aversive side. Hmm. So I don't know what that, like a dry insight. I don't know, I can't speak to what that would feel like after because it's coming from an aversive, a little bit of an aversive orientation is creating the letting go. I mean, these are different, just different pathways up to the top of the mountain. So the one's not better than another, but it might be experienced differently. 
if it's like the jhana practice and the samatha tends to be more juicy, it tends to be more on the full side of the equation. And, and that's, I tend to lean more there. So for me, it was more of like, it was almost more Sufi-esque, like a return to the beloved. So it wasn't, uh, it was more on the full side than it was more on the unity than the empty side. And I do practice a lot of Dzogchen also. So that was, that feels more because it's coming from a view of reality that's, that this is Nibbana, that samsara Nibbana are, are the one thing. It's our view that makes one, makes it one or the other. There isn't really a need to get off the wheel. So it's a different, that is the view, even though I teach a lot of Theravadan practices, my view is actually more Tibetan. It's more the Mahayana Vajrayana view, which is actually true of a lot of the Western Theravadan teachers. So when it comes to the four path model, stream entry, once returner, now returner, Arahat, is this cessation the same experience as being the same vanishing, the same unborn? irrespective of the paths or is it just the fetters falling away that is what actually defines a person as more enlightened yeah well that's a really good question it's my belief that the actual just like the formless realms it doesn't matter what tradition you're in what path you're in there isn't a set of formless realms if you're in the ayakama tradition and a different set of formless realms if you're in the Hawak tradition there's formless realms they're empirical realms and so it's my view that cessation is the same that there is one absolute what i would call the absolute which is the very most fundamental dimension of non-duality it is the dark it's really what I think Theravadan Buddhism is going after the most. It's the black, the 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 complete void, the the non-being, the mystery from which all form emanates. And that is the most fundamental thing we can know. Mm. That we are. We are that at our most fundamental. And that is what the consciousness, the individual consciousness that is affixed to a body gets absorbed back into temporarily. And I don't, I, I don't think that that depends on the tradition, but I do think there are ways that awakening can happen. Other, not all traditions have cessation. So I'm not sure about that. I actually, my, my own perception, the more people I meet, the more teachings I see, the more individuals I see who I feel are awakened, right. who maybe haven't had the cessation experience and teachers who haven't had it, who I feel are very realized. So I don't know how to explain that other than to say there may be other ways that it happens other than cessation. I, I don't know what to say about that. I mean, in Theravadan Buddhism, it's very clear that that's required. So I, so, I don't know. So we're starting to get questions thrown okay. at us. Any anyone else uh, want to ask questions? You can you put them in the YouTube comment section or or on Facebook. This is from Paul Fears. What is your experience with non-physical phenomena, spirits, devas, subtle energy, 
non-physical realms, aliens. Do you believe these things exist? <laughs> I would say that I'm very open to that possibility. There have been times in, and in traditional Buddhism, there are different realms of existence right. that are considered very, very real that I've seen into at different times and I've experienced different kinds of beings. I, at one point in my own growth, like when I did my year long solo retreat, I got a very clear message to not explore that anymore. And I, I have been involved in communities of people who are very skilled at perceiving other realms, psychics and, and such. And there are ways that at times people can become very distracted with those things. And it actually takes them off of their awakening path because wow, it's very point. exciting. And so I was told, I have no judgment if people are doing that. It's, it's their path and they need to, there can be a lot of benefit from having contact with higher beings, but it's, so I, I would say that I, I'm open to that possibility and I feel that I have experienced that, but it's not something I seek at all anymore because I was given, it was a clear knowing when I did my year long solo retreat that I needed to stop that. So I did. I got a question. You mentioned a meditator and a nun named Deepa Ma. And I think in other talks, you, you mentioned that this lady was able to sit in meditation for a day without moving an entire 24 hours. I think she was able to do Longer, more than right? a day. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe just didn't talk about it very openly. So what is it about meditators that can do that? That can sit for two days without moving compared to the average person who enters jhana is it just that they they just have thirty thousand hours under their belt what do you think <laughs> well deepa ma a lot of people feel that she was one of the most attained practitioners of our time so i mean talk about a unicorn right. i'm like a, a goat compared to her so yeah so she was a real unicorn and that makes me a toad if you're, if you're a goat, i'm a toad please <laughs> I'm the goat that gets put in the stall next to the unicorn if she's the unicorn. So yeah, so she was just phenomenal. And she also was a renunciate in a lot of ways, even though she was a householder, she lived a very poor life and very, very humble and very willing to renounce at the level of, of a lot of the monastic tradition. And so she was I think used to suffering in a way for her practice and just in life that a lot of us maybe don't have as a capacity. Like if it hurt, so what, you know? But I, I think she also just, I mean, she's the one that Manindra and Mahasi Sayadaw, of all the people they could have picked to test out whether or not the paranormal, supranormal powers were real, whether or not what was described in the Vasudhimaga worked or not. And they want to do a test, so they picked Deepama. That's who they picked. Of everyone they knew around the world, they picked her 
to do the experiment and she did it and she had scientists studying her and she bilocated and she predicted what a politician was going to say in the speech two weeks later and wrote it all down and then they recorded the speech and i mean she did all these things and scientists recorded them so you think about the level she did have to work up to that but she just couldn't do it every day she had to have the jhanas going and right. have them sustained but you know, I mean, she just was a practitioner at a level that I, I think there are extremely few humans who will ever be at that level. She's a huge inspiration to a huge number of people. So, yeah. Wonderful. What's the title of her book? It used to be called Knee Deep in Grace. And gosh, I can't remember the new title. But if you go into Amazon and put Deepama, D-I-P-A space M-A, it'll probably come up. Fantastic. Next question. What's your view on sexual abstinence and some of the tantric philosophy of the use of sexual energy? Yeah. Well, I think both have their place. I really do. I mean, I, there was a period I undertook where I was like in my thirties and I decided to intentionally be celibate for a couple of years because I wanted to both feel the I wanted to work through that craving for relationship and and find some peace with with that social and human and biological urge that we have and also the energies from that can be used for spiritual practice that's what monastics do and it it is a lot of energy that is can be utilized if one is using it internally and bringing it up the central channel and using it for spiritual practice, it can be a, a certain kind of, you know, power for the practice. So that can be extremely useful. And if someone feels drawn to that, I, I would encourage them to follow that, that pull and learn more about it. They, the Taoists have a lot of technologies around that that are fairly advanced. So if you read books, Taoist books, there's some very detailed things that they suggest about that different for men and women also and then there's the the tantric sexuality practices that are done with a partner and that can also be a very legitimate spiritual practice where it's done as a spiritual practice and also utilizing those energies but in a different way with with someone and that that does different things because there's that vulnerability of being known that doesn't happen when one is by oneself. So there's some different ways that that can, it's not surprising that comes from the Tibetan tradition where there are a lot more about eye-open meditation and, and that transition from on the cushion and off the cushion being really emphasized quite a lot in the practices. So I think both of those are valid. A lot of your students have had quite a bit of success with realizing Rigpa and the Dzogchen path. How did you move into that? And what is that like now? Because I- Yeah, I, again, one of like it's Spirit Rock and, and IMS, and mostly I've studied in Buddhism at Spirit Rock and then with Palak Sayadaw, of course, they would have Tibetan teachers come there. And a lot of the teachers were studying with Tibetan teachers in particular, Sokni and Minja Rinpoche's. 
And so I did that. I did it. I did it as part of, it was really kind of the umbrella practice for my year-long solo retreat was Dzogchen, even though I would do deep dives into the Samatha or doing Vipassana, that was sort of the umbrella for the, the year and, or doing Brahma Viharas, I did yoga and Qigong and such. But I just did the practice for so long and have, have done it so much. And when I hit my 10-year point of teaching, a lot of teachers will take a sabbatical, which I did at, at year 10. And I really want to think about, do I keep teaching? Is there a demand for it? Do people want it? And what would inspire me? And I realized I wanted to teach something that was closer to my own practice which doesn't just include the Samatha practice, it includes Vipassana and Brahma Viharas and Dzogchen, as well as other things. So that's when the Luminous Mind Retreat was born, where people on the two-week retreat, well, and the other thing I'll say is that I love the Tibetan teachings and the retreats. One thing about those retreats, though, is there's about six hours of teaching, talking, teaching a day and not that much meditation. So I would find, yeah, I would love them, but I would find I had to do the retreat and then I had to do another retreat to practice. And then I didn't have any guidance while I was doing that. So it wasn't optimal. So I thought I want to give retreats that are what I would have wanted, which is a teach a retreat that really is about meditation where you're practicing where it's bare bones teaching and where they get a lot of of guidance which often on you don't get one-on-one guidance that much in tibetan retreats which i think is really essential because people waste a lot of time just going in circles and and so that's when the two-week retreat now has a track for samatha only people who want to see how far they can get with the samatha purely Everyone does Samatha for a week, which is another thing that if you're going to do Dzogchen, you need some strong concentration. You've got to have it. And the Tibetans really believe in it, too. They really emphasize Shamatha in that tradition. So we do a week of that, and then people decide if they want to stay with the Samatha or go on to the Dzogchen. And then there's a day or two with Vipassana, and then there's the Rigpa, the pointing out which I will say I've been asked, have I been authorized by a Tibetan teacher? And the answer is no. So I don't make any pretense to say I have been. But when Pawak authorized me, he authorized me to teach up to the level of my own attainments. Mm. So everything I teach is something I've attained. I don't teach anything I haven't attained myself. And so that's why I feel that I can do that because I love the practice and I basically use the neuroscience to break it down to its simplest form so that people can learn it in two weeks and and between the Samatha, between the jhanas and the Rigpa realization, it's about half the people on the retreats are having some taste of non-duality. So and then at the end of the retreat, so the Dzogchen people get those instructions. The Samatha people don't hear them because you don't want to be distracted. And then at the yeah. end, people can switch over. And sometimes sometimes somebody who's been doing Samatha all the way to the end can switch over and realize Rinpa or vice versa with the jhanas. And so I, to me, it's like the best of everything because 
people have the option for both. And there, and for those who want to learn the Dzogchen, they have two weeks of actual sitting with support every two days. Amazing. You know, Amazing. yeah. So I just love doing it because I get to keep teaching the Samatha, which there aren't that many places to learn it, but I also get to teach what is closer to my own practice now, which is um, the Dzogchen. That's so incredible yeah. because I want to, I'll share a story really quick. When I met Namkai Norbu, Chogo Namkai Norbu in 2012, and then again in 2013. And wow. there is, there, there's meditation and it's for 10 minutes when you're doing guru yoga at the end of the lecture, right? Exactly. Exactly. I don't, I'm not sure if I ever, if I ever told you this story actually, but so the first one in 2012, I, I read about the pointing out instructions and I had this idea in my head that, you know, I'm going to get enlightened when uh, he gives the, when he does the guru yoga. And so at the end of the lecture, he's explaining nature of mind and mind being like a mirror and, and all this. And it made no sense. None of, none of it made sense completely over my head. And then he does the guru yoga and gives the Ati yoga transmission and the pointing out instructions and nothing happened. So at the, so afterwards I go up to him, right? Cause you get, you get some time with him at the end. And I, I asked him a question or I, I paid my respect to him. And, and I asked him, uh, Rinpoche, you did the, you did the, the transmission, but, but nothing happened. Did I, did I miss something? <laughs> he started laughing. He started laughing and he's just keep practicing. <laughs> and so a year later I meet him again which is so unusual that he would come to Pasadena of all places wow. two years consecutively. And uh, this one was a little different. He gave different transmissions and long like empowerments for certain practices. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And I, and at that, at the end of that retreat, I got more time with him or, I mean, I got to ask him a question again and I asked him, Rinpoche, how do we realize nature of mind, Rigpa? And he just looked at me and he said, how do you feel? I said, present. And he said, now relax. And I said, that's it. And he's, yeah, <laughs> he just nodded. That's it. So that made no sense at the time, but you're a Dzogchen practitioner. So you totally get it. Can you explain what Rigpa is, what essential nature, what nature of mind is, what that means? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Rigpa, the way I understand it, it is nature of mind is another way that it's talked about. It's, it is our fundamental awareness and it is the awareness that's aware right now for everybody seeing this right as you're sitting there it's there you don't have to do anything to get it it is the awareness that's knowing all mental formations all all perception and phenomena that are rising in awareness it's the awareness that is knowing that and that is is the ground and and in the dimensions of non-duality what i'll say is that i where I place it because Rigpa is bright, it's clear, it's it's not black, it's it's one level up in my view from the absolute, where it's like in the it it equates to neither perception nor non-perception, which is a non-conceptual but clear and bright and very open level of awareness that is much easier to maintain with eyes open and functioning in the world than the absolute is because the mm. absolute just sucks everything into it. It's like a big, you know, black hole sort of thing. 
in a way. It sucks all form and thought and everything else into it. So there's a stillness that is extremely profound in the absolute. But but uh, Rigpa to me is one level up from that. And it is still the ground awareness, but it's one that is easier to function from. And that is why I think it's so cool that the, the Tibetan teachings are focused on a dimension of non-duality that is still extremely empty and profound, but that is possible to function from, which allows for us to go through life. If there's enough stability, one can function and do normal things and have that be possible to have continuity there. So that's to me what Rigpa is, is that ground awareness that is non-conceptual direct knowing of experience without identification. Boom. That, that is an awesome. Wow. Great, great definition <laughs> of that. Another question, this will tie into a question that I have actually, how much does removing ego material and psychological issues play in awakening stream entry, et cetera? And the question I have attached to that is, how does a person go from having glimpses, as you said, to it being their ordinary ground consciousness permanently? There's no, <laughs> that's the fifth, that's the, what do they say? $52 question or whatever it was. That's the big question, really. That's, that's, that's it. Yeah. Psychological work is extremely important. I just can't emphasize that enough. And I think it's been de-emphasized and what we have in this era, what we have in this era is psychology. That is what we've got that all the other generations didn't have. And if you know, I believe if the Buddha was here now, he'd be using all that. So yes, working the psychological material is extremely important and therapy. You know, sometimes people think spiritual practice can do it all. And there are certain things that are better treated, I think, with therapy with with psychological interventions and the two can be very go very much go hand in hand and and support each other so why not take advantage of what we have in this era so and the other thing is the way i like to work with people is that on the cushion you will see your patterns this is you're either doing transformation of your patterning so you're basically stuck seeing hindrances and defilements and self-images and defense mechanisms and all that, or you're having contact with the transcendent. So you're either doing transformation or transcendence. When you're sitting, that's what you're doing. So when you're seeing the patterning, why not just be curious and not judge oneself about it and, and be like, wow, I go into planning a lot. I wonder what that's about. How is that mm. protecting me? What is kind of ego defense? Is that from fear? Is that from greed? Is that from I'm bored and I'm going to do planning while I'm sitting here? And then off the cushion, we start working with that in our life. Like, how am I trying to control my life through this? Or, And we start doing the off the cushion work just as actively as the on the cushion. And things can be liberated in our off-the-cushion work too. And so they become one seamless flow that support each other. So I feel that's essential, just as essential after awakening as before. Look at the scandals. That's why they're happening yeah. as people have awakening and it feels so 
permanent and if it's awakening it is permanent but that doesn't mean all the psychological material is gone so yeah it's really important and then you were and then the second part was how does one go from glimpses to stability well the psychological material is a big big part of that thinning of the me like the Theravadan four stage model I this is my addition onto that model but what if you would say the first stage you say you're over the 50 51 percent mark you're 51 percent grounded being and 49% ego. That's still a lot of ego left. So, and the, if you look even at the Theravada model, it, you just got a reduction there. You don't have a wiping out of the defilements. And then the next stage, say you're up to 75%. So in next stage, you're up to 90%. And it isn't until the very end that you're at 100%. And so few people will ever get to that. So to me, to just assume that you're gonna be working that stuff the rest of your life, and get good at it. So that is part of what makes the continuity possible is there's less ego material that we're identifying with. We're, we're seeing through it and we're getting some freedom and digesting the things that were too hard to digest at the time they happen. And that's why defense is formed. So that's one thing. The other thing, frankly, is concentration. Without concentration, there, I don't care what practice you're doing, it will wobble and you'll be lost in thought and identified again without that faculty being strong in our consciousness. And that's why the Samatha, no matter where one is, it's, it's valuable because you won't have continuity without a concentrated mind stream. I just, I don't think it's, I mean, just logically, it doesn't make sense unless all your egoic material is gone, which doesn't seem that likely. So between the thinning of the me and then developing the concentration, also how you arrange your life. If you're too busy, there, there isn't enough mind share to keep part of the awareness on the ground. It's anyway, it's a combination of a lot of things. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Two, two final questions. I know I kept you longer here than I promised. Oh, I that's okay. you're, a, you're a unicorn. So I had to. Yeah. <laughs> so, question is, this is in my temple, the, the Dhammakaya tradition. This is a topic that a lot of people are talking about physical health. A uh, third of the monks and monastics in Thailand, there was a study showed that they had diabetes, big problem. Oh. It's very, very unfortunate. What's your take on the importance of physical health and meditation practice, asanas, yoga, even I've heard you mention Tumo. How did you work with those, particularly on your year-long retreat and afterwards? Yeah, I think it's physical health is really important. I mean, I know in traditional Buddhism, there's sort of a disparagement of the body, but the way I see it, if we're going to have a, a human experience, got to have a body, no other way to be in the physical realm. So if we're going to have one, we might as we should respect it the way everything should be respected and, and not be, I, I don't believe that aversion towards the body is actually, I don't believe aversion towards anything is actually helpful. So physical health, I think, is very important. I've always done some combination of 
yoga, walking. I do hiking. I'm, I'm pretty active physically, but for, as a spiritual practice, yoga, walking, and Qigong. And wow. yeah, I think that Great. those practices, whatever a person is drawn to, to do those regularly, if not do something physical daily, especially if you're sitting a lot. Oh, and I, I mean, the, I have done the, the eight precept route. And I think if someone feels inspired to it and your body can work with that, then it's great, but it does encourage a lot of, it's not so good. I mean, I think this may be part of the diabetes situation is sort of the feast and famine. It's not really as good for the body or in my case, I have low blood sugar. So it, it would affect my mental, my cognitive capacity. And so like when I would sit with Powak, even though we were on eight precepts, we did have soy milk mm, and right. he felt it was important to keep your strength up. So I, I would encourage people to have a healthy body, to eat healthily and to take good care of your body because it's necessary for a human experience in the physical realm. Fantastic. And this will tie back into the, the year-long retreat you did. In that lecture on dimensions of non-duality, you mentioned that you were basically practicing 24-7. You had awareness even while you were dreaming and sleeping. And in the Tibetan tradition, we call that dream yoga. How did that actually manifest? Did you find that you would just awareness was stable. So you just transitioned into the dream state and would continue meditating while dreaming. How did that actually look like for you? Yeah. Well, I, when I did the year long, I intentionally wanted to do dream yoga. So I, I had been on and off over the years doing dream journaling, which I also did during that year because it gave me some insights into my unconscious that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Again, going the personality material dream work is a great tool for bringing material to the conscious mind that's buried. So I, and I had tried learning lucid dreaming. And so that was intentional. I, I intentionally, I had all this time. So I thought, why not try it? And so some of it was intentional. And then there's periods where I will have this on and off where I will find that there's what I would call a rigpa lock-in. Mm -hmm. that just becomes stable without doing anything. It just locks in for some period of, you know, time where consciousness is continues through sleep without doing anything. So that to me is different than doing a dream yoga or lucid dreaming where one is taking steps but I think they're both excellent. And like my Tibetan teachers, this may be what you're referring to also said that if you can realize Rigpa in your dreams three times, then you will probably be able to do that at death. So, I mean, three times like in a row, not wow. three times, but if you can do dream yoga to that level, it's a great training for the bardos. And by clear light in the dream state, do you mean that? Uh, when the dreamscape dissipates and there's just a clear light of awareness? Well, the way I interpreted realizing Rigpa during the dream state would be that in the dream state, when one is 
lucid dreaming in the dream, one is realizing Rigpa mm. intentionally the way one would like in, in the Dzogchen practice. That if one in the dream could do that, could be lucid and realize Rigpa like that, that would was good training for being able to maintain consciousness in the transition of death Got it. with that state transition. So yeah, so that's how it was during the year. I mean, I worked full time and a corporate environment and all kinds of things since then. So I can't say that that's been constant the whole time, but that's amazing. I love how honest you were about, about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it, it does happen. I mean, it's, it's happened a few months ago where it was just constant. Wow. That's incredible. A final question. So I'm, I'm going to ask it and then we'll, we'll end the show. And I think this is an important point because when students are in the presence of you or in the presence of another teacher that, that has entered these states and has these realizations and really lives them, there's a visceral effect on the student. It actually, the student awakens, can awaken further being in the presence of a teacher. What is responsible for that? Do you have a theory on why that is? Why, for example, people will go to a retreat with Ajashanti and they've gone here and there and nothing happened. But for some reason in front of Ajashanti, they just wake up. Why does this happen? You know, students with you, I'm sure they get this. They do your coaching and there's really a lot of progress, but it seems that a lot of it isn't from words. Yeah, well, I mean, there's mirror neurons. Oh, so I mean, we're starting to understand biologically some of that, that mirror neurons will, we, we have resonance in our neurons with others. So that could be a scientific explanation, but, but you, I think you've seen my little diagram here. So, okay. So this, what, this isn't a trick question. What do you see there? What might, okay. See a piece of paper covering your hand. And, and you see four separate fingers. Oh, okay. Right? Yeah, I see four yeah. separate oh, fingers. There, let me do that. Four separate fingers. Okay, this is how we normally experience each individual. We're all separate individuals. This is what happens with awakening. Is yes, there from this level, from this view, there's a truth. There are four separate. From this view, there's a hand. And that's a lot more fundamental. And so what's happening is that when there's that contact, the non-separation can be experienced. And so that is what's actually happening is that the sense of where the two individual consciousnesses aren't actually separate in reality and in a different dimension of reality that gets activated and so it's it's really just activating the other person's awareness of that and there's mirror neurons so <laughs> that would be the scientific but i mean there's they call this transmission in the past but that gives that makes it seem a teacher is like zapping the student with ray beams or something. And I, I think it's it's a little bit more like I'm trying to show the mechanics of it. Mm -hmm. That there is actually a place, if you think about it as dimensions, like sometimes it feels like a wormhole to me. 
that there's a wormhole that goes down through the dimensions of non-duality to the absolute. And at the level of the absolute, which is the deepest level, there is just the mystery, really. I mean, there's it's it's that black source from which all everything emanates. At that level, there is no separation at all. Right. And so that is what's getting activated. The awareness of that is getting activated in both people. Beautiful. And um, it's a genius explanation of awakening. <laughs> Tina, Tina, thank you. Thank you very much. This was a wonderful, wonderful talk. I'm going to be posting your, your, your website uh, in the comment section, but can you tell everyone where to find you and they sure. should? Yeah, yeah. My website is www.luminousmindsanga.com and all my events. And I do one-on-one -on -one sessions with people, which a lot of teachers don't, but I love doing it. And other things, my retreats in a box, my mentoring program, all that's on there. So thank you so much, Ryan. It was really, I enjoyed our conversation. Oh, it was, it was yeah. so much fun. Thank you, Tina. Thank yeah, you everyone for welcome. watching. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review. For updates on future guests and shows, you can sign up to our newsletter. As a thank you, we'll send you a 10-minute video on getting out of duality, which has some very, very useful meditation pointers. So go to ryanjburton.com and click on get started. Thanks for tuning in and see you on the next episode.